the truth is November is my least favorite month of the year. <laughs> I don't know why I keep coming here now, but, um, but this makes it all better. Um, yeah. So I'm just going to do a little height adjustment without trying to do anything drastic. Um, somebody here recognized this as a Palarego painting, and um, she's a Portuguese painter and a favorite of mine. Um, I was trying to describe what it feels like as the title story of this book. I was trying to describe what it feels like. It's like being a beautiful city on the night of a biblical flood. A million bucks, all mine, already spent. Like a beach ball skipped out to sea. Baby, you show up on my avenue, baby, and buildings drop to their knees. I'm the flood, I'm the flood that fells them. I'm the zoo and animals in it, and I feed you out of my hand. Eat from my hand, you have to let me. Every boy I ever loved peeled his face off and gave it to you. They're all you. It's your face instead of stars and stars on the move Arctic, and you're the tether, Christ's gaudy hissing crown. You make me loose in the middle and melted. I'm like fire, but slow, like rock. Like I'm the planet and you're the axis. Be the axis. You be the thing I turn on, up in the igneous, up in the rot. Make me a moon, moon maker, whoo, like that, like that, like that. <clears throat> um, Jody points out that that's sort of a prose poem, or a flash fiction, or a prose poem, or a something. Um, I, I always feel like the, all the boundaries of between things are negligible and um, better ignored. So um, this is sort of a list poem called Duende, or story. <laughs> it's not a poem. It's really a story, sort of. I'm not going to pull that stunt again where I don't look at a book. So if it makes you nervous, don't worry. <laughs> you can relax now, and so can I. <laughs> I could relax more if I had my glasses, but they're in my pocket if I need them. Duende. I came upon the pink plastic leg of a doll in a country where next to no pink people live, and soon upon the broken arm of the doll with its fanned out supplicant hand. I thought about the girl whose doll it had been, whose doll it was maybe still, like a brother from a war, his limbs missing. She had a father who crumpled his shirt at his chest and stroked his belly in the sun. She sang songs she made up to her mother, and her mother, in her way, sang along. I poured the sand out, salt, a scrap of shell, and carried the arm in my pocket. I came upon the teeth of a man dead and buried in a grave the sea dug out. The teeth were the color of honey lodged in an eaten bone ants in the bone in the tunnels. How did I know these were a man's? I didn't. Ser humano, ant farm, it doesn't matter, but it did to him. I came upon the cat my boy left on the shore between pongas with his shorts he'd had on. He'd had a girl out there where the pongas are, and the thief swiped most of their clothes. Missed the cap. You could have called me, I said. He said, mother, 
His cap was blue, sir. She wore polka dots, green and yellow, a flower in her hair. I found the print where they lay. I found their footprints dense in the polished sand. I came upon one of her flip-flops, her feet as small as a child's. Upon a child washed ashore, but I didn't. But a child had washed ashore with his eyeballs burst on a tide from the neighboring town. A rag in his mouth, a body curdling, brother, cholo, son, a melon, an eel, the ragged fin of a whale. Each day for many days, yellow onions, peeled clean by the sea and spit out. I came upon a bead 400 years old that meant 10 chickens, one cow. Who really knew what it meant, what it counted? One bucket of milk, two virgins, the bosque from there to here. Repollo, bizcocho, huiquito, choro, cabbage, cake, little hole, curly. Did they know what had happened? They didn't. In the cup of Chora's hand was a parakeet blown off course from the jungle. Macaco, payaso, Carlita, Juan. I asked anyone I found. I found Adidas from Fukushima, alligator handbags, bowls that fit in bowls that fit in bowls, all bright, fly swatters in little kid colors. I found a booby dead, its feet like a duck's a webbed and miraculous blue. Hawksbill, Olive Ridley, a hammerhead as small as a hammer, a swallowtail, a bee, a wingbone weightless as a drinking straw, walking, I found these walking until I couldn't walk or see anymore or think at all or breathe. I was the mother, monstrous, a joke. I was the mother shrieking at the bottom of a poisoned sea. His father would say, what of it? So you drop to your knees, what comes? At last I went home. I followed the sloppy, sandy track that climbed to the house to my bed. They were lying on my bed, laughing. I was almost sure it was him. You could have found me, I said. He said, Mother. The pangas are all named after women, he said, sisters mostly and wives. My boy swam the mile home naked, the moon making glass of the waves. To be safe, he said. He was serious. He left a track of salt and sand through our house to the bureau where I keep my clothes. My son, my son. Did the girl know they were my clothes? My shawl, my skirt, the yellow of honey. She was lying in my bed, lying in my clothes and laughing with sand on her feet in my bed. I wish the worst for her, a wicked uncle, a job scrubbing booths at a peep show. She was silken, sixteen, untrammeled at rest. She lived on nothing, on the fruit that drops from a tree. She hooked her leg around his leg to keep or climb him. Two beauties, saved, a bullet dodged. They seemed to float there, godly, jeweled, Salt on their skin, the sun ignited. My son was her life, her rubio now, her movie, her catch, her prize. She was flawless. No, she looked wolfish and her tooth was broken. I had the arm of the doll in my pocket and I lay it on the sheet beside her. The girl would think duende 
and flee. During day steal your socks if you sleep in them. They steal your teeth, your keys. I pressed the fat of my thumb into the doll's hand and the doll took hold and squeezed. It was a duende's hand, beguiling. But the mother of the girl whose doll had it been hadn't known the girl. The hand was a duende's hand. And by now the little girl was missing, spinning down in her sun hat through the darkening sea. If I went to my knees, if I called out, would the men I once loved beseech me? throttle me again with their sweetness, their sudden thrashing need. I reached for my shawl. It was morning, but the brightness of the day had gone. It was a yellow hat, sir, sun in her hair, a tasseled dress, sturdy and blue. <clears throat> I don't know, have you all heard of Duendes before? Yeah. I didn't know if that was common. Um... So my idea here is to kind of shift gears a little bit and um, read a little essay, which I have never done in public before, so if you'll indulge me. Um, and uh, so I, I do feel like a lot of us are trying to write in different forms, or um, uh, maybe some of you paint and draw and also write, and I'll just envy you from a distance. Um, <laughs> I think it's... Um, you know, some material doesn't suit. The vessel isn't fiction, or the vessel isn't a poem, or whatever. Um, this is called Rumination in Three Parts, which is a pretty innocuous and neutral and lame title. <coughs> if you hear something else, let me know. <laughs> a better title. I'll pay you for it. Um, years ago, I, how are we doing with time? Okay, so far? Yeah. Years ago, I lived in Tanzania on the shore of the Indian Ocean in afternoons when the heat was too much. I pulled on my fins and walked backward into the broken waves. I had fins because I liked to swim out almost past where I could see the shore. I was 25, 20-something. 20 I felt not so much invincible as curious, drawn to peril, easily lost. I never had a premonition of drowning, but a dread that I would be eaten. Still I swam because I loved the feeling and the strange peace of being beyond the break and beyond where anyone could see me, swimming to India, swimming to Zanzibar. I often wondered how far I could go. Once I swam up close to a fishing boat, very small, there were often boats and in them two or three men, beautifully dark against the glare of the sun, standing in the boat and hauling in a net or flinging a net as if sowing seeds out into the swaying water net of words. I thought of Virginia Woolf, as if they were netting a story. I thought I would become their story, the Mzungu my accident caught in the net, helplessly knotted, my hair in my mouth. They would haul me out and into the air, drowned, among, the flop, among all the flopping, gasping life that would drown from being dragged out of the water. Of course this never happened. What did happen one day out swimming was that I found myself suddenly and irretrievably lost. I could see the shore, but I could not see the curve of beach where I lived with my boy from America, my American boy, my amour, my temporary lover. I could not see the small hotel we lived in, the rumpled bed, the grace of the net that hung around the bed to keep the malaria mosquitoes away. 
He'd had malaria, he would have it for years. But I couldn't see him, and I didn't love him. I only loved that he was a gypsy like me and a dreamer. For the moment, I dreamed myself lost and soon exhausted in the great wide sea between Africa and India, the trade wind, the current the merchants sailed along, bringing silk and spices and tea. Twice now I have typed a little sigh in the Indian Ocean. I meant to type not sigh, but fish, little yellow fish of relief. Sighing, of course, is a sign. So too was the fish, a beacon, big as my little finger. It was a grayish, dullish, yellow fish that brightened when it caught the sun. In an aquarium, I learned that a band of nerves runs laterally down the sides of a fish, and by these, the fish senses movement. By these, the flashing thousands are able to move as one. Swallows, too, murmurations, flocks, and the glare of the sun, the velvety blue, a swooping exultation. But this image comes from elsewhere. Here, there seemed nothing between Africa and India except me and a dull yellow fish, small enough, small enough to swallow whole. I turned for shore, and the fish turned with me, beneath me, below my breast, my belly. I couldn't see it quite. I had to stop to see it. It had chosen me, somehow. I hope to go on believing in the weird miracle of being chosen by the little yellow emissary, a thrush in the trees, a leaf falling. I have a sense sometimes of being spoken to by living humans, yes, but there is more to it, more to us than this. Because a leaf twisted down at Roanoke, and I lay on my back and watched it, and my husband, who was not my husband yet, lay on his back beside me, and we watched the same leaf. We married because of that. And because of this, two people, a boy, a girl, came to be, who so easily might not have been. If not for the helpful yellow fish, I might have panicked and drowned. The fish seemed to guide me ashore, to wish me life. How this might sound to a sensible person doesn't much trouble me. I don't believe in an orderly universe, but I believe that when that leaf fell, it fell for me. It fell because I wanted it to fall, because something in me was seeking, and in seeking I could see an answer that had long been there. I knew the leaf was my dead mother coming to me saying, as she often did, simply, live. And so we married. I have been married 20 years, and my husband, a sensible man, down to earth, easy to like, down to earth. Isn't this a strange thing to say? My husband felt my mother speaking, too. The leaf came down in its twisting, erratic way and fell near us where we lay at Roanoke and the chill of the evening coming, and my husband, who was not my husband yet, who had never once met my mother, knew without saying a word that she spoke to him also. He felt her saying also, go on and love her, live. This is a rumination in three parts bound to the centering self. In the first part, a fish swims beneath me. In the second, a leaf falls beside me. In the third part, a dappled horse appears among the stars in my head. 
Each act was at once negligible and lastingly momentous. Each was its own weird blessing. The dappled horse appeared in Egypt months after I'd left Tanzania and left the American boy I had traveled with, who was drawn to peril as I was, drawn to peril like me. I traveled alone by then and preferred it. I piloted by whim, or what I thought was whim, who could not see the footprints before me, could not see how often my impulses did not originate with me. Cairo, heaps of saffron in the markets, chickens losing their heads on the chopping block, flowers, heat, a terrible brightness, and the pyramids, of course. I found a stable. I don't remember the saddle, but in my mind the saddle was tasseled, colorful, cloth. The horse was dappled with the pretty dished face of an Arabian, a horse bred to live in the heat of the desert, a favorite of Genghis Khan's. We lit out across the Nubian desert. At a lope, at a gallop, the guide ahead of me, an apparition in white, a girlhood dream, king of the wind was the book in full flower. Elated, I have seldom felt so, what, insubstantial so entirely unknown, unfindable. At a gallop, my horse stumbled and went to its knees, and from its knees surged forward and over me, still in the saddle, thrown to the sand. And day was night instantly, and the brain I used to see with saw the night sky pricked with stars. Months later, in Tuscaloosa, I was telling my father this story. He looked amused, maybe incredulous. You don't believe me, I said. No, no. You think I made it up. I can't have seen stars. I was ready with a scientific explanation. Scientific explanation. The occipital load, lobe, etc. No, only that your mother... We had traveled to Cairo just as you did to see the pyramids, the Nile Basin, the ruins. This would have been 56, uh, 57... A date is like a door to a story for my father until it is opened. He cannot go on. September of 1957, he went on. That very thing happened to your mother. A horse fell on your mother in the desert, and like you, your mother lay there and slowly stood up and rode away. I lay there. My horse heaved up and stood looking down at my face. I felt the breath of the horse on my face, tender, the skin a little raw from the sand. I did not think of my mother. I watched the stars going out. I could hear them. Bees, I might have called them. A flock of gnats. Flock. Swarm. Murmuration. School. And closer still, above me, that marvelous, dappled creature. Who says essays are trying to prove anything? Um, so I think I'll just read one more story and then see what you feel, how you feel about questions. If you have any things you want to say, or are you feeling okay? Is it getting too long? One more story. Okay. My um, daughter came to a reading that Joanna Scott, who's very animated when she reads gave once, and um, she was in person. She was doing all the mimicking with the voices and everything, and kind of moving around and everything. And my daughter, who was about six at the time, she asked me later, she said, Mama, how come you don't 
read like Joanna Scott instead of blah, 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 blah. Like somebody died, she says. I'll try to pick it up a little bit. <laughs> this is called At Last the Escalade. Well worth it, well worth it, the last of the legendary glaciers and cell phone service besides. They have seen a wolf and bighorn sheep and a hundred cheeping pikas on the rocks and a pair of boxing marmots. But the littlest is a little let down. They have to get back to Ohio, back to the hover mother and school. He has to pee so bad. He can't stand it. So the father pulls off at Sunrise Gorge. There's a waterfall and people around. Soon the water is falling in the sunlit gorge and the little boy's peeing on a little rock and the big brother pees on a bigger rock and the father has his out too. Here a bear appears from between the trees and stands a while to watch them. It's just watching. They can't pee anymore. They waited so long to see a bear they can scarcely even believe it's a bear. It's a bear, says the bigger boy. The father says lowly, boys, it will eat me first thinks the littler boy, and the bear thinks, indeed. <laughs> the father makes a gutsy father sound and stands his ground bravely between the bear and his boys, and the bear leaves the path to trot around him. The bear wants that little boy. That boy is doing exactly what his father says and walking backward toward the escalade, but the bear is trotting frontward at him. The boy turns and runs, which you are not supposed to do. But lucky boy, because the bear turns and opens his mouth at the other brother. Don't run, say the pamphlets. Don't shout. Don't run, shouts the father. And now the other brother is running, too. And you can bet if they hadn't peed three seconds ago, they would all be peeing now. The bear is closing in on the bigger boy. The bigger boy is the father's favorite boy. It's true. The father runs shouting down the path of the bear with his car keys scratching at his pants. At last, the escalade. But the doors are all locked. The littlest boy tried, so the boys try diving under the car. The bigger boy is giggling now. It makes no sense, but so what? The crowd has begun to gather. Oh, a bear they have waited so long to see. The bear takes a swipe at the boys beneath the car. The boys roll across the gravel to the other side. So the bear trots over to the other side and takes a swipe and they roll off again. The crowd loves it. How like a circus. Stupid, but you have to admit. The father shouts and waves his arms and the hover mother sips iced tea with a sprig of mint with the shades cinched tight while her boys roll fast and away from the face and the terrible yellow claws of the bear and the dreadful meaty breath of the bear and the little one bleeds, nicked in the ribs and socks his brother for laughing. The father makes a claw with his car keys thrust between his chubby fingers to do what he doesn't know, go for the eyes, but instead he whips his keys at the bear's awful face. You guessed it, the car is still locked. A button springs out from the little boy's shirt and turns like a top and lies down. But let's keep to the bigger picture, to the sipping and swiping and the stone the father heaves, and at last to the father on the hood of his car, his beautiful car. At last to the father on the roof of his car, Bluetooth and drop-down screens, and my God, the chrome, the leather. But what passes now to the vast mind of the bear, we will never know. Pity, disgust, despair, 
a bush of ripened berries, a juicy beetle, bees. We can't know. What a shame we would like to. Happily, our story stops here. The bear takes a last swipe across the hood of the car and leaves a mark in the luminous pearl they will decode the miles home to Ohio. The mark is a bigger version of the mark on the littler boy's ribs. The father takes it to mean buckle down. He quits carousing. He finds a job he can stand not to hate every day and loves his boys like a crazy man he never was before. Now the day shouts, be something. Be free, one boy thinks, in a flap tent. Be a bird in an eaten tree. He plans to fell his first goat with a bow he carved and pack the meat out in a rucksack and bloody cooling slabs. Forage for parsnips and mushrooms. For luck, he will carry that button. For love, he relies on a chickadee who lights on his steady hand. For now, he's still under that escalate his father is pounding on. His poor father has yanked his shirt off and he is flapping it like a rodeo clown, oblivious at last to his beautiful car and his ugly, patchy, blubbery gut. It's alarming, but that's the idea. He has bloodied his nose with a button. He is shrieking like a peacock and sobbing and clutching himself in the chin. The bear rears up and walks into the shade like a man he never hopes to be. And a woman claps, uncertain, applause, no lonelier sound in the world. My heart, my heart, the father sobs, and the sobbing sounds like choking, which it sort of is. In a minute, every Tonto watching will hurry off not to miss the nightly feature. Happy hour, buffalo tongue, lucky us, we can eat them again, snatched from the brink of extinction. Yippee. That's it. <laughs>